0: whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Author of Vineyards, Rocks and Soils, Professor Alex Maltman is an expert on wine geology. I caught up with him from his home in Aberystwyth to talk about his life's work. Our in-depth chat covered earthquakes, Welsh Séval Blanc, different types of rocks, his definition of the French word terroir, the unseen factors that affect vinous aromas and flavours, and why geology is so often misunderstood by people in the wine business. Hello, Alex, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, Tim. Pleasure to be here talking with you. I, I can't wait to learn so much from you about geology. And I love your book. I love your articles. And you have this amazing knack of being able to communicate very complex things to ignoramuses like me who don't know that much about science. So, so
1: Well, let's hope that happens now then. <laughs> I don't know. Can I just say that it is a privilege for me to be here with you because I have looked at the galaxy of of wine maestros that you've had podcasts before. Yeah, and a privilege to be for me to be here. That's, well, nice. you, That's great. Thank you.
0: You deserve to be among them. And you, you're in Wales right now. You're in Aberystwyth, where you spent, what, 50 years of your life. Were you born in Wales as well? Are you Welsh?
1: I was born in New York, in the north of England. Hmm. And I spent the first 18 years of my life there in York. It wasn't the tourist honeypot in those days that it is now, but I loved the place, had a great time. My father was Scottish, so I spent time in Scotland, which I also loved. Uh, but yes, I'm essentially a, a, a Yorkie, though it's a long, long time since I, I left the place. And, and, and what got you
0: interested in geology? I mean, was it walking around the Dales or going up to the Highlands or something or what?
1: Well, I did a lot of cycling because York is a great center for cycling, Mm. and uh, I don't know why, but I always noticed the landscape and wondered why hills were where they were and things like that, and the old story, I had a good teacher. Mm. There was a chap at school, at grammar school, that taught a bit of geology, and I just uh, got hooked. So there was no question when it was time to go to university. That's what I wanted to do: geology, and I've n- never looked back
0: really. And, and, and you went to Liverpool in the sixties, right? Good time to be there, I'd imagine. And then the University of Illinois, where the, the, t- the that's where you did your PhD, wasn't
1: it? It is indeed, and a master of science. Yeah, I don't know why, but I, when I was a kid, I uh, well, my family were a bit musical. I've always been interested in music. And when I was only 10 or 12, I suddenly was electrified by this new American sound, rock and roll. And whoa, I made a point of seeing all the great, nearly all the great early rock and rollers. And I've got a great fondness for that. So when it came to go to university in 1962, well, it was Liverpool. It had to be. Did you see the Beatles? I did. I absolutely went to the various cellar clubs and that. And um, and then I'd run out of steam in Liverpool. I had a great time there. Liverpool was thriving in those days. But, uh, well, I had to <laughs> – gosh, music I, – I had to go to the homeland. And so, uh, you know, I'd only been at university there – Less than a year when I'd been to the blues clubs in Chicago and I'd been to Memphis, I'd been to New Orleans. It was great. So I I had a great six years in in the States, Yeah, yeah, completing a doctorate there. But, you know, when I finished that, the big city thing and all the bright lights, I'd got that out of my system. I'd grown up. I wanted to live in the country so when I decided I wanted to be an academic, I applied for academic positions in small rural universities. This one at Aberystwyth came up mm. and um, got the job. I don't suppose <laughs> and, I ever... And didn't move, right? Ex, ex, well, yeah, I've been here nearly um, 50 years. It's um, It's been a great time, really. And I'm still here living out in the country.
0: That's good to hear. I mean, a lot of your early research, we might call the first part of your career, was been exploring the way geological sediments deform right? especially what you call mega faults right where the earth's tectonic plates converge i mean those are earthquake zones presumably aren't they i mean absolutely earthquake or not
1: absolutely they are yes something like 80 percent of the earth's Earthquake energy comes from these zones where one tectonic plate drives underneath another one. What I call mega faults, and mm. according to how they slip, yeah, that's um, whether or not you get earthquakes. Very much so. And can we
0: predict them? Can we? Do it? I mean, is there anybody due one? I mean, Chile or California? Uh, I don't want to tempt fate.
1: Uh, what we can do very well is predict where. Hmm. earthquakes are going to be and it's where these big faults are uh, active faults at the moment particularly around the pacific and across through the himalayas to the mediterranean that's where the fault of the earthquakes are going to be but we can't predict when yeah with sufficient precision to be of any use so where yes when no
0: so they could happen to two, two years running could they or, yes. or, or 50 years apart right
1: Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that's very trivial on the geological s- scale of doing yeah. things. But for humans, that's not much practical use. But we know where they're going to be, definitely. You talked about
0: the geological scale. I'm always wondering what it's like studying something which is, you know, 4.5 billion years old in some ways. But I've always loved the sound of these building blocks. It's about a bit like listening to the shipping forecast in the morning. <laughs> these, these lovely names, you know what I mean? Devonian, right. Jurassic, Cambrian, yeah. so on. How, how precise are these building blocks in, in, in terms of, of time
1: scale? Mm, well, I'm glad you like those names. So do I. And Most of them have very interesting stories behind them too. But anyway, we don't have time for that. Uh, I think they're very precise. Uh, I I really do. Don't forget, uh, as you say, the Earth is 4.6 billion years old. But all these names that you know and like are all crammed in the last 0.6 billion years. The first 4 billion years of Earth's history is what we call the Precambrian it has subdivisions. But all these uh, Jurassics and things, um, yeah, they're all crammed in the last bit. So there's a, a certain precision straight away. And then as you'll know, any wine lover will know that the Jurassic, say, is subdivided into intervals like the Oxfordian, the Kimmeridian, Portlandian. Well, these are subdivisions of the Jurassic. So we're now pretty precise. We're down to, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, maybe less in the more uh, recent periods. And by geological standards, in the context, as you say, of 4.6 billion years, I Mm. think that's pretty precise. Mm. But can I just add one more thing? It's a bit of a bugbear of mine. This is all good fun, and uh, I love these names too. But they are irrelevant to wine, to vineyards. The vine, as I sometimes put it, the vine doesn't care how many hundreds of millions of years ago the bedrock formed. might sound good. What the vine cares about is the soil it's growing in, the loose detritus derived from those parent rocks, and almost always that soil is vastly younger than the parent bedrock. In fact, in much of the wine growing world, it's Thousands of years old at most, and is forming now as we speak. Um, it's certainly younger than the last ice age ended ten thousand years ago. So all this stuff about Cambrian and Jurassic sounds good, but it's not of relevance to the growing vine because it's the bedrock, whereas the vine grows in the soil, which is vastly younger.
0: Because there was a big fight in Shapley, in, in, in wasn't there, between the Portlandians and the, and, and the Jurassic, uh, sorry, the Kimmeridian schools. You know, some people saying, well, I'm on Kimmeridian
1: lines. There was. It's all a bit misguided, to be honest. And then another thing, if I can add this, I mean, say on the slopes at that the, the soil falls down the hill through time. And for centuries, the growers have carted, literally, the soil at the bottom back up the slope, and to join stuff coming down from the Portland at the top, so the actual growing soil is a bit of a jumble, really. Mixed this idea that it's got to be Kimmeridgian, which is just a period of time anyway, it's all a little bit misdirected. Interesting. I mean, you're a
0: vine grower yourself. I mean, just tell us about the vineyard. Where is it, and what have you got it planted with? It's in Wales, obviously, but oh, can, that, you well, see it from your bedroom window.
1: Uh, it's in my garden. When I when I moved here, part of the point was to 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 um, buy a small farm property, which I did, with a bit of land. So uh, I know you're going to ask me, how many hectares of vines do I have? <laughs> well, I have 20 vines. But my tenet is that whether you have 20 vines or 20,000, it's the same principles. I have to make the same decisions and choices that the big commercial grower has to make i have to decide how to trellis when how to prune how to manage that canopy when to harvest how to do it how to make the wine what yeast and do i punch down all those things are just the same it's just a matter of scale have you made wine from the grapes oh yes oh yes i make wine every year what are they tell us what have you got what are the 20 bucks um about half civil Blanc and half Bacchus, Uh which I like.
0: I've got to try this.
1: Uh, but I I, I want to say I've learned so much from doing it, albeit on a tiny scale, trivial scale, maybe. You know, you've got to make these choices, and it's taught me so much. So I think I can speak with a little bit of authority about my making of stuff because I've done it for a long time
0: in action. Tell us about when you're interested in what you call the geology of wine. We could call the geology of wine began because it wasn't part of your early career, was it?
1: Oh no, no not as such, no. I think of it in terms of a number of different strands going along that I was unaware of. I've always grown my own fruit and vegetables and then vines, but I always asked questions about why I did it certain ways. So I learned about horticulture, the soil, and how it all worked. When I made wine, I was always questioning, how did that work? I've always loved wine from a very early age and was captivated by the names and the labels. I traveled a lot and always made a point of visiting vineyards, talking to people. And I didn't know it, but I was accumulating knowledge all the time. There certainly was never any plan, <laughs> no goal for it. It was just having fun, really. It was interest. And all the time, of course, I had the geology. as on top of that. So when this great fashion suddenly exploded, what, 20, 30 years ago, to talk about vineyard geology, which is conspicuously absent, Prior to that, I look at the books I bought in, say, the 1960s. They barely mentioned the soil. Certainly nothing like now. So when this exploded and I saw journalists and um, promotional people throwing these geological ideas and geological words around, I went, well, no, wait a minute. Um, that's not right. And it suddenly hit me that perhaps unusually because of all these strands coming together, well, I know about this stuff, and I can I can tell people how it works and let them respond as they will. And suddenly I thought, well, vineyard geology, I can do it, and I don't think there are too many people that, that are on top of all the relevant strands. They're geologists, but they've not made wine and so on. So really the answer to your question is, mm, 20, 30 years ago, when this general interest in wine geology suddenly became fashionable.
0: And you were well-placed, obviously, as a a distinguished academic.
1: Exactly, but I just by serendipity, it was never a plan. And uh, so I thought, well, I've got to show the evidence and let people make of it what I've always been careful not to preach or say you're wrong, this is the evidence, this is the way, as I see it, vines grow and interact with the soil and so on. There we go. You you make of it what you will.
0: Yeah, and I think you do you do it very gently, I, I must say. I mean. We've got a quick plug for your book, because it's brilliant, which is Vineyards, Rocks and Soils, The Wine Lovers' Guide to Geology. Guys, if you haven't got that book, it's absolutely brilliant. One thing I want to ask you, you know, you've got this tremendous academic background. Do you ever get a sense when you're in a vineyard that, that you you sense how good the vineyard is going to be? Do you have a sixth sense in that sense? Or do you need to look at the science before you can say, yes, this is a place no, that we No,
1: I don't have a sixth sense. no. No, uh, no, no 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 as we we may come into this but i i think um so important for the success of a vineyard is the climate the right mix of climatic factors well of course you can't see that um so uh, no i i I, no, I have nothing more than say you have about that mm-hmm. no
0: and uh, just give us a geologist's definition of terroir i mean the french always say terroir you know uh, they say there's no english word for it? I mean, is there an English word or is there
1: there an English phrase that captures it, do you think? No, I don't think there is, no. Uh, To me, terroir is self-evident. As I mentioned, I've grown my own crops for, for ages and I've always known that some crops do better in a certain spot than another one year on year. And that, as I see it, is the coming together of all the different factors that influence the growing crop. And it's neatly summed up, in this single word, terroir. I think the trouble is, I think there are two issues. One is that some people insist on equating terroir with the French word terre, the soil, the ground. Well, if it's the same, we don't need the word terroir. It's not the same. The terroir, to me, is the sum total of all the relevant factors, including the technical-sounding ones and the ones we can't see. And that's the beauty of the term. But I think equating with soil, that's um, that's, that's a red herring. Uh, the other thing is that it's um, tempting to try and deconstruct all the factors that are involved in terroir and what's more important than that. I think that's invidious because there are so many factors dynamically interacting all the time throughout the day, throughout the season, varying in relative importance and mutually interacting. That, that's just... Uh, a fearsome thing to try and disentangle. So that's the beauty of the single word terroir. It sums it all up: the properties of a site in a single word. And
0: geology is obviously part of that, and so is the human factor, isn't it? You know, it's you out there, in your little backer's fund. Yeah. Right?
1: Well, y- yes. Potentially, potentially, yes. I don't, it's that's a grey area, I think. Yeah, maybe. I, I think um, it's these invisible factors that that. Um, that are critically working all the time and we tend to sideline them although we know many climatic things are important for how a grape ripens and so on but uh, and increasingly we know that microbiology the, the the yeasts and bacteria in the soil and how they interact with yeasts in the air that this is important too but it's He seems to lack the charisma or something that's saying, oh, the grapes are from granite or from Mm. volcanic soils or something. So that's what people write about, Mm. even though it's not demonstrated that it's of any particular importance. Um, And and the technical factors, well, yeah, they tend to be forgotten.
0: Yeah. But let's talk a little bit more about geology. I mean, every basic introduction you read talks about the three types of rocks, igneous, sedimentary, metamorphic. Can you just give us a quick overview of the differences between them? And are those differences always as clear-cut? <laughs> as oh. you, there are grey areas there, aren't there?
1: Oh, yes, yes, yes. That, that's a great question, Tim, because at first glance, and certainly you've just got to Google or something, well, it seems all clear-cut. Igneous rocks, you're right, we divide rocks into into three types. Igneous rocks are those that were once molten. Sedimentary rocks are those that were sedimented, deposited, usually underwater, under the sea, built up in layers on the seafloor. And if either of those rocks, through geological time, finds themselves in new conditions of temperature and pressure through burial, then they change in response. And um, those change rocks we call metamorphic rocks. So dead simple. But it isn't. Because rocks, like many other things in the earth, are very difficult to categorize. And the early geologists struggled for a century or two trying to Classify rocks, all the obvious things like what color are they or what are their physical properties, what's the chemistry of them. It it didn't, for various reasons, work and take us anywhere. And it was not until about 1860, I think, that somebody came up with the classification we do use. But if you think about it, it's a very strange one because it's based on how rocks form. And with just a few exceptions, Nobody's ever seen a rock form. I mean, one obvious exception is lava. But if you knock that out, well, nobody's ever seen a granite form or a greywacke or anything like that. We have to interpret it from what we see in the rock. And being interpretive, it's open to disagreement. And there's lots of examples of geologists squabbling about whether this rock was molten and therefore igneous or not, Ooh, well, I think it's got this, and it wasn't. No, it wasn't molten, and so there are these grey areas. Now, most rocks fall neatly in the middle of the box for sure, but there are all sorts of gradational areas uh, at the margins, and so. Um, This makes geology quite a tricky thing to understand. It doesn't lend itself to snappy definitions, particularly if you want some sort of understanding. I'll just give you one quick uh, vineyard-type example. In certain parts of the world, you've got slate, except that some geologists call it schist. Well, is it slate? Is it schist? Well, one grades into the other. As temperature and pressure increase, slate can become schist. Well, where do you draw the line? Different geologists, different cultures, say in Germany versus France, draw the line in different places. Well, this really complicates the issue. So you've really got to have the understanding of the processes to understand the problems. So this is the big, one of the big challenges with geology. It doesn't lend itself to putting in boxes and snappy definitions. And this is partly why I think I see so many um, howlers.
0: Yeah, we'll come on to that. So So your slate could be my schist, is what you're saying.
1: Yes, it is. Yes, because they're gradational. And so there's an arbitrary line to be drawn. And that's exactly what you see in, say, priorata somewhere. Some people say, oh, it's on slate. And other things say, it's on schist. Well, neither are wrong. But you've got two different names. What's going on? Well, it's because of this gradation, and there are countless examples of that. Correct me if I'm wrong, but rocks
0: are an aggregate of minerals in one sense, aren't they? I, I just want to ask you about the term minerality. When you read that, does that make your blood boil? Do you think, what are people talking about? It's very
1: fashionable. Uh, no, no, just just one aspect of it makes, what's blood boil, but... Um, no, I, I can see the uh, need for a label for a certain sensation. It's not very clear what the sensation is, whether it's a mouthfeel or a, a taste or what. But yeah, I, I get why people want to call something minerality. The thing that I don't like, and the, the thing I've tried to address my efforts, though, is that for demonstrable reasons, it can't be literal. It is not I would argue, the taste or the aroma or whatever of um, geological minerals in the soil that have been taken up by the vine and transmitted through the system. Because the vine can't It do won't that. work. You know, A, the minerals don't have any taste or smell. B, vines can't take them up. They can take up dissolved elements as nutrients. They can't take in geological minerals. They're not there in the finished wine. So in no way can it be literal. And that's what I've tried to um, lay out the reasoning for.
0: It's a metaphor anyway, yeah?
1: What yeah. it is, I don't know any more than you, Tim. I wouldn't <laughs> like to say. Let's
0: talk a little about soil. You did mention it, and, and particularly about the terms topsoil and subsoil. Now, and was fascinated to read in your book that subsoil doesn't really count as soil, right? Um, Just tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Well, that's a terminology thing. Uh, I I think what I meant was that most of the vine roots and certainly what we call the feeding roots that are taking in the nutrients are in the top soil, in the top 60 centimetres, metre maybe, of, of, of the soil if it's there. The only reason that vines send down deeper roots, if they can if the subsoil allows it, or there are fissures in the bedrock, is to seek water if they need it. They're not getting nutrition from down there. The the nutrients are not available because by definition, the material hasn't weathered enough. Uh, And um, they're getting the nutrients from the the topsoil. And incidentally, in practice, this is something we don't like to talk about very much, they're getting most of their nutrients from the organic part of the soil, the humus the compost in gardening speak. That's where the nutrients are accessible and easily taken up by the vine. And um, they're not really getting it from the, the, the nutrients from the geology anyway. But it all happens in the, the top part of the profile. So
0: the important bit is your, is your topsoil, really, yeah?
1: Well, it depends. There are places where the topsoil is directly on bedrock, pretty much. Uh, some soil profiles are deep with with um, thick subsoil parts, but the vine isn't making much use of them apart from getting water. The nutrients are coming from the, as I say, the, the organic rich topsoil, the dark looking compost rich topsoil that, that's only the the, the top metre or so.
0: T- tell us about some of the kind of classic pairings that we know of. I mean, I just wonder: are some rocks, minerals, sediments, soils, Better suited to certain grapes than to others. You know, classic pairings would be Syrah and Granite in the Northern <laughs> Rhone, Cabernet Sauvignon gravel in the Medoc. You know, Chardonnay and limestone in uh, in in Champagne or Burgundy, Merlot and clay in Pomerol.
1: Uh, uh, in a word, no. Right. It <laughs> so doesn't no. really work if you think about it. What the pairings you've just mentioned are, it seems to me, are reflections of the classic European sites that just happen to have a particular geology. So, yeah, people think of the Côte de Rhone, um, the granite and so on. No, it just happens to be granite there. Would it be that different if it was anything else? Well, then, if you look more closely, uh, Côte Rottie, for example, uh, is only partly granite. There is schist there and other things. The Hermitage Hill has got loose on it and a bit of limestone on it. Uh, it's it's not all granite, and yet that they are growths of the same status, so I don't think the granite is doing much. And also, if you go elsewhere in the world, unless you're going to take the view, well, the only wines that matter are French, well, you know, you've got Shiraz wines and Syrah wines, you know, top-notch wines from Barossa, say, um, Parl's Fartland, South Africa, Yakima in uh, Washington, Hawkes Bay, New Zealand. I mean, these are pretty good Shira, uh, Shira's. That aren't necessarily on granite, yeah. But none of those I've just mentioned are on granite.
0: Padaburg a little bit yeah, a little a little bit maybe in, in, in the Swatland, but not much. You're right.
1: Swatland? Um, yes, well okay. Yes, yes, you're right. You're right. That's right
0: You're right, yeah.
1: Um, but you know, so um I, I don't really think it works. And why would it work? I could go through the same argument with, with the other rocks, you know, Riesling and Slate. It's, it's your
0: snappy definitions again, isn't it? People are jumping to these snappy definitions really they're they're taking shortcuts
1: of course and it sounds good i get that i like the romance of it but that's okay i'm not i'm sorry to spoil the fun but i feel i have to point out (laughs) certain things and you know make what you want of it i mean you've written
0: that vineyard geology is commonly misunderstood and you've been telling us why during the podcast but i mean whose fault is it i mean has that always been the case it's interesting you're saying that 50 years ago, nobody was mentioning the geology of, of, of vineyards. Whereas, when did that kind of trend start?
1: Well, I don't know whether or not you agree, Tim, but I think the wine world is very susceptible to trends coming and going. I mean, just pff, a few years ago, it was the winemaker that was everything. Flying winemakers were the thing, you know. You never hear about the winemaker now. It's all in the vineyard. A few years ago, oak was the thing. All you get now, is it oak-aged or not? Uh, I can remember whole magazine articles about oak, you know, wh- where in the tree was it from, where in the forest, where, which French forest, and all this stuff about oak. And uh, you never hear about that now. That fashion's gone. Uh, <laughs> whether this vineyard geology thing is a fashion or not remains to be seen. But I am aware that it has blown up, just as with minerality, since about the turn of the millennium, more or less. And, um, you know, it ticks the right boxes today, amongst other things, the backlash against uh, anonymous industrialized food stuff. People want provenance. People, People want to know where things came from. Well, if this wine came from a certain vineyard, and even more than that, you can link it to the soil. Well, I mean, what's more viscerally satisfying than than that. You know, it ticks the boxes and so people go with it. So it's with some uh, sadness I'm arguing. Well, no, it's not that important. Uh, But, you know, facts are facts as I see it. Well,
0: I I think you talk about it in your book, you say it's also part of a longing to nurture this link between the land and the wine. That's a little bit of what you're talking about, I suppose. Is it PR-driven as well? Do you think that
1: wineries have... Oh, absolutely PR-driven, absolutely. But, you know, uh, I've touched on some reasons why it happens, and I sometimes think to some extent it's in our genes, because for so long, literally thousands of years, people thought that... Wine was made from the soil. Certainly plants, vines, grew from the soil. Soil matter, water, obviously. But what was the rest of the stuff? It was matter drawn from the soil. Therefore, it of the wine was made from the soil. Aristotle said this, you know, 3,000 years ago. And it's been with us right through to, you know, just a couple of hundred years ago when photosynthesis dawned. And that really, plants and wine, not made from the soil at all, it's made from the air, carbon and oxygen in the air and hydrogen and oxygen from the soils. Let's not forget, you know, almost all wine, 99% wine is just carbon, hydrogen and oxygen. So here we are quibbling with these minerals and nutrients with that tiny, tiny bit that's left. It's those bewildering combinations of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen that make all the taste-flavor compounds that influence wine, and some of which we're very sensitive to in tiny, tiny amounts. These are the things that give the wine its character. Uh But, you know, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, <laughs> that doesn't have the romance of saying this is a wine from volcanic uh, soil. Uh, from limestone or something. Or limestone. Or oh, you can taste the limestone. I Yeah, i mm. Limestone
0: Um, has no taste. It's interesting that because there are certain people, even well-qualified ones, much better qualified than I am, like Pedro Parra. I don't know if you know his work work in in Chile and elsewhere. He's appeared on this podcast. He's saying that you get a a distinctive set of aromas and flavours from a certain soil type and rock type, certain type of geology. Are you just saying that's rubbish? <laughs> oh, that's maybe you wouldn't not. be that blunt. Are, we, are you saying it's we're wrong to see that connection?
1: Jolly! <laughs> oh, I have I have great respect for these people of experience and so on. Um, but let's face it; these are claims. They are beliefs. Where's the evidence? And two things strike me. I have been with people uh, like I've never met the person you met. I, I've read some of his stuff. Um, Oh, yes, uh, volcanic soils are so important. Give a certain nuance to a wine, you know, volcanic wines. And I say, okay, I'll present you with a, a number of anonymous wines that you don't know anything about. You tell me which ones, if any, are from volcanic soils. And we'll have to do it two or three times to to eliminate chance. Oh, um, no, I'm sorry. I'm busy right now. The shy away from putting it to a true blind test. So yeah. what's that all about? And the experiments that have been done scientifically to try and see if a soil signature comes through, none of them have picked up anything. There was a nice experiment a couple of years back in the Netherlands. where They had certain cultivars in different soils. And uh, in a second version of the experiment, they had different yeasts. And all the resulting wines, vinified uniformly as far as they could, went to a completely independent panel, actually in Germany, of trained tasters who knew nothing about the experiment, and were just asked, can you put these wines into groups with anything common? And they did to some extent. They could recognize some commonality between a particular cultivar mm. And the yeast. There's a whole. Yeah, these have something in common. Ah, well, these are all made with the same yeast. Ah, but uh, what about soil and that included limestone? Nothing came through with the with those vines that are being grown on limestone. So, for reasons like that, I have to say that these are claims that people make, and they sound good. But I'd be uh, much more convinced if they stood up to testing.
0: They stood up to science in a way.
1: I mean, wh- you yes. know, when we
0: taste things like wet stones or oyster shells or dried blood, are you saying those those are sort of chemical and 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 biochem- biochemical things Bio- rather? Than-
1: Bio, yeah, the biochemical. Yeah, there's a whole raft of. Um, flavors which some of which have been given names that sound as though they're earthy and stony but in fact are due to bacteria and things Uh, possibly the best known one is petrichor Uh, this is the well-known smell you get after a shower of rain if you have uh, a dry period oh and it rains you get this distinctive smell. Oh, it's the uh, it's the earth mm. smells earthy, of course, and, and it's people, understandably, uh, wine tastes to say, "Yeah, oh, I'm getting petrichor." That's okay, but it's a metaphor. It's a it's a reminiscence of that smell. It's not due to the geology, because if you think about it, when you get that smell, it doesn't matter whether you're walking on concrete or tarmac or on rock or on sand, they all give that same smell It's because it's the organic matter that's in the air all around us that has very quickly settled on the substrate, on the geology, if you like, and filmed it. And it requires that rain. And and there's um, very impressive high precision video footage of this, of the raindrop landing on that surface. And the stuff turns into an aerosol, gets in the air almost instantly, and we can smell it. But we are smelling these decayed organic products, which have been labelled petrichor in this example. And so when we are saying, I'm getting this wet stone smell or smell of a struck match or something Mm. like that, it's a useful metaphor. Mm. We need all the metaphors we can get. But it's not (laughs) literal. It's, It's not the geology we are tasting.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I mean, you also talk about this, and I think you're spot on, you talk about these unseen factors that affect the aromas the and flavours of a given wine. Just, I mean, you've talked mentioned some of them. Are there any that you haven't mentioned that, that are these unseen?
1: Mm, no, I don't know about that. So microbiology has come to the fore in recent years, of course, but I, I do think climate is the big one. And, uh, I think it's often not appreciated that this single word covers a whole raft of factors that um, we just um, forget about. I mean, temperature, for example. We know that temperature affects vine growth and grape ripening and the rest of it, so it's a big one. Well, but temperature, well, do we mean temperature at the vine roots, Mm. at the soil surface, where the fruit is? Do we mean an average? Do we mean midday temperature? Do we mean daily variation or, or what? So, even that one factor, temperature is in fact a whole load of things. And then that interacts uh, with humidity, airflow which interacts with ultraviolet, light penetration, all these things. So technical. But where anyone's taken the time to sense these things and measure them on a fine scale, they've been variable on a much finer scale than we would ever have guessed. There's this temptation to look at a hill slope and say, well, oh, the climate's the same. So why are these wines consistently different to the. Oh, the soil's different. It's the soil. Mm. But whenever anybody has measured these invisible factors, they're varying like nobody's business.
0: How, how interesting. One of the things you said, and I think it's, it's typical of you in a sense, that even though you've got this vast fund of knowledge, um, you said that it's perfectly possible that science is missing something when it comes to wine, and and yeah, you know, this connection maybe between between geology and and aroma and flavor. I mean, what might that be? What might it yeah. be, that you're
1: <laughs> Tim? I've got no idea, and that's the point. That's the whole <laughs> point, really. I say that partly as a matter of principle because that comes with science. Science, by definition, is never complete. We're always questioning. It's hard to see how things that have so much evidence are ever going to be overturned, like the earth being round or something like that. But um, it could be. Science is always open to questions. So there could be something. I said that as a matter of principle. But uh, I also want to underline the fact that I'm not preaching. I'm just, just relating how things are as I see it. But I'm no, uh, I'm no religious uh, person saying you're going to go to vine <laughs> as hell unless you believe what I say. Th- these are the facts as I see it. Uh, you know, what do you want to make of it?
0: And listen to it or not. I mean, people can, I'm sure, hear that you were a brilliant teacher, but you retired from teaching, what, 20 years ago, I think. But you're still yeah. very active. I mean, how do you spend your time now? Writing, travelling, tending your vines, your
1: 20 vines? Yeah. in the back. all of, of the above. All of the above. Yeah, gardening takes quite a lot of time. Um Yes. I mean, I am trying to wind down a bit. I have to say no to things more often, particularly if they involve traveling. But yeah, I've got um, family, grandchildren who live abroad, Netherlands and Belgium. So, you know, I go and see them. That takes time with my wife, who incidentally is American. Met her during my time in the States and she's lived here for 40 odd years. So, yeah, I don't know with one thing or another. The, dames, the days seem shorter than they ever were when I, when I was younger. Is there another book in you? Yeah, there might be. There might be. Tell I us more. I better not say any more, but uh, yeah.
0: You're working yeah. on something. You I am
1: writing some stuff, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, listen, we look forward to reading it. Thank you so much for sparing I mean, unbelievable amount of knowledge. I could talk to you for five hours, instead of which we've only had 40 minutes, but it's been fascinating to hear your view of geology and how it connects with wine. Thank you very much, Alex.
1: Tim, my pleasure, absolutely.
0: We can understand why Alex is such a great teacher. I can listen to him for hours. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Adrian Bridge of Taylor's Port. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports articles and tasting notes by me go to my website timatkin.com you can also follow me on twitter at timatkin and on instagram at timatkinmw see you next week